0: What's up, guys? It's Derek here for Rap and Wrestle and Wrestling IQ 101. Uh, Today we have a very special episode for you. Uh, We have the one and only living legend Larry Zabisco. Um, This episode was too special and too big just to stream on one platform. So decided to drop it on both Wrestling IQ 101 and Rap and Wrestle uh, podcast and it's an exclusive episode for you guys. Um, make sure you check out wrestling IQ101 on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Wrestling IQ101, as well as on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Same thing for Rap and Wrestle at Rap and Wrestle. Uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode. And here it goes: the one, the only living legend, Larry Zabisco. <music> Today is a very special day. Uh, I usually say that a lot, but today I really, really mean it. a very special guest today. Uh living legend, a man who's seen it all, a man who's done it all. The one and only Mr. Larry Zabisco. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good, Eric. That was a hell of an intro. Good job. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. I know you had a lot of those. So, you know, I, I got a lot of people to live up to when it comes to doing an intro for, you know, a living legend himself. Well, thanks. At least I'm still living. So. <laughs> that's a good part. Um, for sure. We're all still living. We're all still, you know, trying to get through all this craziness that's going on. Um Yeah, I yeah. really feel sorry. I mean, I can't my life hasn't
1: changed, but I really feel sorry for the young generations, small mm-hmm.
0: businesses. I mean I gotta get this stuff going. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully soon. Um you know, last night was a was a good night for uh, you know, wrestling fans in general, WWE You know, it was the Royal Rumble last night. Did you get to see any of that? Are you still, you know, you still catch up with the product? You know what? I I mean, me and a buddy of mine uh, who works at the Performance Center,
1: Mm -hmm. I I go down once in a while and stick my two cents in, you know, here and there. But I haven't gone down for almost a year because of the
0: COVID. Yeah. Because you have to get up at five in the morning the previous day and wait in line and get a test and wait, yeah.
1: So. But, I've been, but we usually watch Monday Raw every week. Uh-huh. That way we know what's going on and things to tell the new
0: guys, you know, what basically not to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what? Last night I was doing some family stuff and I didn't have a chance to see the Rumble. Yeah. I, he-
1: I heard a few things and I heard uh, that the Roman and Kevin Owens match was. Really brutal, I guess. I mean, I didn't see it, but they said they really, you know, beat the crap out of themselves with diving off of Scaffolds. Things, smashing the scaffolds. I mean, what the guys are doing today is really, they're doing a lot of dangerous stuff. hmm You know, but I didn't have a chance to see it, and then I heard something about
0: Edge One. That might have been kind of a surprise, I guess, yeah, Edge won the uh the men's Royal Rumble and uh you know uh, Bianca Belair she uh won for the uh women's Royal Rumble. Yeah, Bella I actually went with the long long ponytail. Yeah, yeah, that's her. <laughs> yeah, no, she's a good athlete, got a good charisma, so that's that's good. Yeah, no, for sure uh the Royal Rumble I felt like, you know, that that the women's match in particular was very good and um you know it showcased a lot of the, you know, the new athleticism of women in general in this, you know, age of wrestling. Um, Have you seen, like, you notice, like, the, you know, big changes? Like, how was women's wrestling, you know, back in the day when you first started to, you know, where it's at right now? Well, I mean, back in my
1: day, there wasn't very many women. You know, mm-hmm. it was like a small camp that Moolah ran, and the promoters in the territories, they bring the women in, like, once a year. Like as an attraction, and they'd hit all the clubs for a month or so, and then leave and go to a different, you know, territory, kind of work the circuit down as an attraction for a month or two and hit all the towns and then leave. And then there were some good athletes, but they were more wrestlers like we were. Yeah. They weren't flipping off the top turnbuckle to tables, and nobody was.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, but I've been watching them, you know going to the pc and watching the, the women i mean i i, I tell you I've, I've never
0: seen so many super athletic women mm-hmm. you know and some of them i mean uh can move better the guys yeah yeah no that's <laughs> I mean, true for sure you know and then they're doing dangerous stuff and
1: but uh, yeah super athletic women uh they're they're really amazing me and I tell you, if you saw the PC and, I mean, the, the training that they went through and other things, I mean, it's really amazing the stuff they do today. When You know, back in my day, they didn't have gyms everywhere and they didn't have all kind of fancy machines and workouts for different body parts and all that. Yeah. You know, I worked out with Bruno in his basement, and we spent an hour and a half on heavy benches and flies and chests, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, you know, traps and heavy biceps, and that was it.
0: Yep. You know, but I was, but, but, you know, when I started, I was 180 pounds, and
1: three years later, when I hit the pros after working out with Bruno, I was 245 pounds, and I was benching
0: 465 and a half pounds. Oh man, that's I, that's crazy. You know, people today, a lot of guys who want well, to do a
1: different body part, and, but we didn't believe, you know, well, we're into doing all kind of body parts because if you can bench four hundred and sixty five hundred pounds,
0: your body's gonna look like it. You know. Yeah, for sure. You really don't have to waste a lot of time on certain body parts. Yeah, and uh, you know, training with Bruno, Bruno's, you know, one of the strongest of uh, all time. Uh can you can, can you talk about just how how that relationship started and like how the first time like you met Bruno? Oh god, this story yeah, I've told it a lot to classic. <laughs> yeah i'm getting kind of goosebumps i'll tell you one story first quick and then i'll I'll tell you i'll answer your question okay but uh when i
1: was like 12 13 my family moved from chicago to pittsburgh because my dad worked for us steel and that was their headquarters Mm -hmm. and that's the first time i ever saw wrestling studio wrestling 12 13 and i like pretty instantly became a big fan And I don't know what it was. It had something to do with justice and what was right. And the, the, you know, the good guy beating the snot out of the bad guy. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of raising the good old days, you know. And my hero was Bruno. Yeah. I mean, Bruno, for his time, looked so ridiculous. I mean, he was so believable. Because, I mean, he was like 265, 70 pounds and he looked like a gorilla. Oh, man. But he was also a very humble man and this and that. But anyway, here's the one story that gives me goosebumps. When I was 13 years old, my family dragged me off to church in this little church called St. Sebastian where I finished eighth grade, and it was a little church, St. Sebastian. And I was sitting in one of the pews during communion, and the family got up to go to communion. But when I looked, down the pew, I saw this big giant broken nose, and this big head with these you know messed up cauliflowered ears, and I went, "Oh my God, it's Bruno!" <laughs> oh, so man. I didn't go to the communion thing. I just slid down a couple of you know spaces because my family left. So I was sitting right next to Bruno at 13 years old in this little Saint Sebastian. And then after the, the mass was over, I ran out and I grabbed a Sunday bulletin and chased Bruno down the steps and asked for his autograph. And he gave me his autograph. And the only reason I'm saying this part about, well, that's the very first time I ever met him.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And the word goosebump part is the very last time I was next to Bruno was at his funeral.
0: Oh man
1: and his funeral was at that same little Saint Sebastian church and I was like basically next to the coffin in the same pew that I met him 50 years earlier I mean the very place the first time I met him was uh, the exact same place you know, 50 years later that I'd be next to him the last time it was just, it's just beyond coincidence, and it gives me, like, goosebumps. Kind of a symbol if you, if you have a dream, and you go after it, and it makes it come, you know, make it come true, and, and it's meant to happen. It's kind of like omens happen. Yeah. And, and the way I met Bruno, when we, you know, before we started working out, was three years later, when I was 16, I started driving, and I found out he lived a couple miles from my house. Oh man. So sometimes I drive that way and I turn the block early and drive by his house. And one summer day, I was like 16 or so, maybe 17, I'm driving by and it was hard to see in his backyard because there was these big thick hedges around the one side by the road. Mm-hmm. But for a second, I caught a glimpse of him standing out in the sunlight by his pool, getting like a suntan. And I couldn't help it. I slammed on the brakes, and I, like, built up the courage and got out of the car. But I didn't know how to get in, so I started crawling through the hedges. <laughs> making this racket. and I come out of the other side of the hedges, Bruno's looking over at this kid, and I'm covered with twigs and thorns and leaves, you know, all messed up. And I crawled through his hedges and walked over, was very respectful, introduced myself and just said, yeah, God, I couldn't help it. I'm the, you're, I'm the biggest fan. You're my hero. And I want to be like you. And I'm... and he was impressed with my wrestling, uh, you know, my amateur wrestling, you know, uh-huh. achievements in high school. And, and this was a, a time in his career when he was just starting to slow down where he would, would just fly out on the weekends. And do the big clubs, you know, the gardens, the spectrum and all that, and didn't do the little little shows. So I kind of met him at a time when he had time during the week to be home, you know, after he was on the road 20 years. And uh, we started working out together, and that's how we started working out together, because he just lived down the road. And I did his workout, and, God, in two and a half, three years, I you know went from 180-pound, you know, high school kid a 245 pound you know strong son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, 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 and kind of resembled bruno in a way with the chest looking there because i did his exact workout with him
0: mm-hmm. oh, but, man. but my
1: bones he had big bones I mean, my, my bones weren't as big as his he could carry 260 270. yeah you know, i was 245 i think the heaviest i ever hit was 250 but i had to eat so much it was silly. so 240 was most of my career you know but back then they didn't have the kind of protein shakes and supplements and things they do today
0: yeah yep you know a lot different
1: yeah and i lucked out too in another way because by the time 1980 came and i had the big feud with bruno and you know i became you know my big break Mm -hmm. is the kind of time where the era started changing and Too many of the guys got stuck on the steroid stuff to get big. But I didn't have, I didn't, I was scared to death of needles. There's no way I was taking it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no one
1: really knew the long term effect back then and that. But but I already had a reputation and everybody wanted to kill me. So, you know, I was 240s. I just didn't need to take them. It wouldn't have helped my career any.
0: Yeah, definitely. But, um, yeah, but
1: the newer guys coming in were like you know, a lot of them were like like the warrior and all you
0: know, dead uh, now. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, you said um, you know, he was uh, impressed with your collegiate uh, you know, wrestling. Um how did you get into that and uh, you know, what made you wanna, you know, get into collegiate wrestling and how was that transition from doing that into going into professional wrestling?
1: Well I wanted to be a professional wrestler in Pennsylvania was one of the very few states in those days, you know, mm-hmm. back in the 1968, 67, yeah, that you could start wrestling in eighth grade. Yeah. So I wrestled in eighth grade, and then I wrestled at North Allegheny High School for four years, and I did the amateur wrestling because I wanted to be a wrestler. So I figured, well, you know, start learning wrestling while I'm young, you know. So I learned all the amateur stuff, And then between wrestling seasons, I took uh, Ishinru Karate. Oh, wow. You know, and that's how I wanted it. That's another story with the nunchucks and burn. uh, That's funny. But so between wrestling seasons, I take, you know, uh, the karate, uh, you know, classes and stuff and tried to make myself the best fighter I could. And then once I once broke into business, uh, I didn't realize it, but I had such a, you know, like, politics on my side because bruno you know was Mm -hmm. my mentor that a lot of the old guys who wouldn't teach anybody anything because they didn't want anybody in the business in those days but they would take me aside and guys like john foley who taught carl gotch and some others who would teach me all the hooks and the submission holds of the old school wigan guys and you know, how to really put someone to sleep and really break a neck and really break an arm. and They were nasty. I mean, they, they didn't run around and dive over ropes and stuff, but man, they knew how to hurt you.
0: Oh, man. I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, uh, one part you talked about, you, you brought up the, the nunchucks. Uh, and, you know, I, I was doing research and, and then I saw that, you know, you were such a good hill that people hated you that you had to Carry a gun, and then you had. Then oh. after that, you uh, carry nunchucks. Is that is that a true story?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, and <laughs> when I when I you know, turned on Bruno, and it was a different time and day, and Bruno was really truly beloved. Yeah. By all the fans. I mean, when Bruno started bleeding and fell on the mat, people in the audience had heart attacks. Oh man. Some died. I mean I tell that to the young guys today and they find it hard to believe.
0: That's crazy.
1: <laughs> but that you know, but but that's how much they hated me and I got, you know, riots and shot at leaving buildings. I used to have to sneak in on trunks and I did a lot of highway driving at night after the show with Cass, so I always carried a gun. In fact when we start flying around a little bit back in those days, there was no security. You know, I'd have a gun in the bag, just walk on the plane.
0: Oh my goodness, wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but then they started with the security, so I figured, well, you know, I I did the nunchucks as part of the Ishinru karate stuff, Mm -hmm. even though that wasn't one of their official weapons. Theirs was the bow and the size, but I liked the nunchucks. And they were the heavy ones, so I carried them in the bag just in case I needed a weapon because people hated me when I was flying around. And uh, the funny bit was... Uh, sometimes I would take them and I'd go in the shower before the show and I'd swing them around and just do the nunchuck routines and swing them just to loosen up. Loosen up my shoulders, loosen you know, yeah. just to start loosening up the body for my match. And one day, one day, I'm in the shower swinging the nunchucks and all of a sudden, burn Gagne goes by. This is like in the AWA, maybe in the mid-80s or something. he <laughs> What the hell is that? He didn't know what the hell those were, what the hell I he was doing. I said, well, they're Nunchucks, or you know, karate, a weapons thing. And he goes, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about because he's trying to think of new things to do
0: uh-huh.
1: with the same guys because Bach Winkle was great, but he's been there for 20 years and Greg Guy has been there for 20 years and some other guys, you know, we needed new stuff so the next thing i knew he wanted me to wear a karate and i had some you know from doing it and used the nunchucks and then he, i didn't even know it i show up to tv and he flew a guy in from japan named mr go oh, wow. to be my to be my ninja sidekick guy <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs>
0: and at
1: the same the funny bit was so he's got me running around with nunchucks and the karate gi and the the ninja and and then he started trying to enhance Bach, Winkle and greg so because when the movies were out so he had Bach, Winkle walking around with the hat and the whip and he was like indiana jones oh, man. when they came out and then he had footage of greg Ganya with his head coming up out of a river with a camouflaged shirt and a big knife in his mouth, he was Rambo.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
1: so, they, you know he was trying to make, you know, characters out of the guys that were already kind of, you know, been there a
0: long time. Oh, man, that, that's amazing. Um, yeah. You know, you you were probably, uh, you know, one of the greatest hails of all time. That's a fact for sure. Um, you know, are there any of these, like, younger guys that you see that you you... You know, respect their, their, their heel work and you think like, oh man, they would have been like great heels, you know, during my time?
1: Well, you know what? I mean, they've got some guys that, I mean, again, excellent athletes doing a bunch of stuff that could be great heels. Mm-hmm. Heels is kind of what makes the business exciting, you know, and, but, but back in my day, people really hated you. I mean, because they really believed and we're into it uh-huh. today's audience is different you know they're they, they like know everything to the point where it kind of takes the fun out of stuff if you know everything
0: yeah that's true
1: so the guys have to be different but the the lost art part the hard part is if you watch the tvs and watch all the matches and i'm not taking anything away because they're all great athletes. But every match is the same. Yeah. Every match, you got guys running across the ring constantly into someone's foot, ten or fifteen clotheslines hit or ducked, diving over the rope with a guy standing there waiting to catch him. You know, every match has to go to the top turnbuckle, and and what's happening is. Both guys are doing the same stuff. One guy does great moves and punches the guy 10 times. The other guy reverses him and then punches his 10 times and then, and then does a great move. So when you watch the matches, I don't know who the good guy and the bad guy is because they're all doing the same stuff. They're all the same. Yeah. And when you watch, I mean, I watch a guy like Roman Reigns, you know, he punches the guy 10 times in the chest takes a step back and the guy kicks him in the face and then comes out. So like the 10 punches meant absolutely nothing.
0: Yeah, definitely. And If
1: if you get the good guy, if it's the good guy that's running across the ring into someone's foot, he looks like an idiot (laughs) and the bad guy outsmarted him. So you're, you're to the point where people really don't care. I mean, it's fun to watch. It's like a car wreck. But the good guy, bad guy thing is kind of disappearing because everybody does the same stuff.
0: Yeah. And
1: the, and there's guys that really could be great, you know, bad guys, but they don't know how to do it right.
0: Yeah, I feel like... You know, the, and that's the... one
1: thing we're, we're trying to get back, but it's it's just hard, and, you know, the way they produce things... And, yeah. You know, it's just uh, yeah, it's I mean even the interviews 10 minutes of a pre-scripted interview that everybody talks for 10 minutes about how they used to be friends and what happened 6 months ago and oh my <laughs> god, I want to go to sleep, I want to fall asleep.
0: Yeah, I feel like the the lines are pretty blended now. Um is it how how true cuz I always hear this um you know like back in the days 70s 80s the hills and the faces Outside of wrestling, they never hung out together, right? Oh no! Yeah, no,
1: you never hung out together. If the promoter found out you were riding in the same car as the other guy, we'd be fired.
0: Oh man! Wow!
1: I mean, it was it was strict, but the guys wanted it that way too because they wanted to keep. The fans believing and that's what made the most excitement for the fans. Yeah. You know, I mean we never had the same dressing rooms. You know, back in the old days.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I feel like I feel like kinda like that last uh, you know, real era of uh, you know, fans kinda like you said, believing is kinda like in uh like the Monday Night Wars, you know, W C W and the Attitude Era of uh W W E and then I guess this is now is considered the the reality era. Is kind of like what some people call it. I don't
1: know what era, but <laughs> you know, I mean, it's getting into the global network era. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, what was the other thing you just mentioned? I was gonna say something before that. Yeah,
0: During the uh, Monday Night Wars, the last. Oh yeah, um... the,
1: the Monday Night Wars. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. look at the example about how guys can still be bad guys. Back in 1997, when, you know, that idea popped up and uh, I'm the one that changed. And I'm, I'm the one that programmed the beginning of the new world order and the invasion thing so it would be done the right way. And people freaked out, you know,
0: because yeah. it,
1: it was done the right way. But if you look at it back in 1997, they still had the stupid dirt sheets and smart sheets and everybody thought they knew you know what the deal was but even though they were so smart when the new world order came around they popped
0: yeah, yeah. they
1: became fans the ratings were over an 11 i mean they were throwing shit in the ring like the old days I mean, and then Bischoff and you know wanted to do some stuff, so I, you know, arranged some stuff with me and Bischoff to save Nitro, and and Eric did a hell of a job and got a ton of heat. People used to dive over the barricades trying to punch Eric out,
0: <laughs> oh, and, man.
1: and they're supposed to be smart.
0: Yeah, but it yeah. was
1: it was done so right, people still believe. I mean, you know, which is fun for them. That's what makes it fun. That and you know what? I mean, if you notice, I noticed something maybe a year or more ago. And if the guys did it right and the promotion and the creative knew what they were doing, you could still make it so much better. I mean, I remember like a couple of years ago or so, there was a four-man tag match. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginning, as the bell rang, Roman Reigns ran into Samoa Joe and they both rolled out and disappeared. Yeah. And a second later, the camera looks and in one corner is Brock Lesnar. You know, people believe in Brock Easy. He's a real guy. Yeah, yep. And in the other corner, when he was getting over, is the monster among men was Braun Strowman. Yep. And Strowman and Lesnar, you know, in that second, you could feel it on TV. The fans went from... uh, And then when the two guys rolled out, and Brock and Braun looked at each other, the crowd went, whoa, whoa! (laughs) I mean, they popped their cookies. They loved it. I mean, it was so easy to pretend, and it sounded and felt like you were back in the 70s. Oh, man. I mean, the people still wanted to see it in the... You know, just hope uh, the business starts giving it to them, because you could, you could do that. You could still have that kind of excitement. I mean, now people just kind of sit there and wait for a car wreck, and if you kill yourself, they'll go, holy shit, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then if some idiot dives off and misses you and lands on <laughs> Hurts himself. Yeah. The crowd starts can "You have up, you effed yep. up, kids are you F'd? And I, I'm wetting my pants. I mean,
0: my God! <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, you know, we talk about um, you know just the Monday Night Wars, and you know, for most most people like me, like you know, I was born in '86, so you know, in the '90s, I'm, I'm a kid growing up. So you know, my first time actually seeing you you know, is when, you know, the living legend, he's doing commentary, he's interacting with the NWO. Um, how was it just being a part of that NWO storyline? And there was like so many times I always just wanted to see you and Scott Hall just fight. And I felt the, it was such a great buildup, you know. And I always loved when you two got into, you know, your little things in the ring. How was that time for you?
1: Well, you know, it was great because, uh, you know, I mean, at that point, I've been broadcasting for about six years and did a little thing with Regal Mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, four four or five years before that. But it it, it felt good because the people believed and wanted to see it. The way I built it up, uh, it just happened to work. I mean, one time I was doing the announcing by the ring and Scott was in the ring and they went to a commercial break and then Scott leaned over and I stood up out of the chair. And when I did, the crowd blew the ceiling off the building. Yeah. I mean, they popped. And when I heard that, we both kind of looked at each other because we both knew people want to see this shit. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so I arranged it to, uh, you know, it happening.
0: Yeah, no, that that was one of uh, you know you my favorite it. parts. It was like
1: Brock, yeah, it was like Brock looking at Strowman. You could feel the Yeah, you know, I mean, it's still there if you do it right. Unfortunately, they're not quite doing it right.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you on that. I hear you on that. That 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 was a good thing too. I I kind of like when when like things like that happen because. You know, for someone like me or, you know, anybody that was born in, you know, late 80s and, you know, watched wrestling during that time period, it was like, oh, hey, here's, you know, uh, Larry Zabisco. And then now that makes you get more interested. And now you go back and you look at all the great matches that Larry Zabisco had. I love how it just connects the generations. Like it kind of, you know, uh, it makes you last for a long period of time because, you know, young kids will always see NWO and you can't. Talk about the NWO without mentioning, you know, Larry Zabisco's involvement with Scott Hall. That was a major part. So you're, you'll always be mentioned no matter yeah. what as the generations go on.
1: Well, I know. I mean, it was good because I, mean, I had a great beginning with the Bruno thing, shocked the world. And then at the end of my career, mm-hmm. I was known as Bruno's, name, the living legend, and saved Nitro from the New World Order. So that was big. And then the cherry on top was, you know, the WWE Hall of Fame. Yeah uh you know great with Bruno and Dr. Me and so it was a great dream and time I had and I lived I'm glad I lived when I did cuz it was a different world so it was, it was a fun life you know it was busy and mm-hmm. not easy to be married in cuz you're never home
0: yeah <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that I could definitely but it was imagine
1: a, it was a fun life because every night you'd be in the arena and you'd connect with thousands of people and the and the energy of it, you know, of every it was—it's awesome. I mean, you know, and God bless the fans. Wrestling fans are the greatest fans of all, and hopefully they can start, you know, really give them some good stuff after this COVID. I'm sure the WWE's, you know, having a real pain in the ass time with this COVID stuff and talent and mm-hmm. and all that. And I feel sorry for them because the, the WWE is really an awesome company yeah. it's become a great company i mean if you get hurt they'll take care of you no matter how many surgeries you need you know i mean the work they do with uh the charities and make a wish plus the thousands of jobs they supply all over the world for families Yeah, it's really a hell of a company but i, I think it's just getting a little lost in the production a lot of production but gotta put that little soul back you
0: know you gotta have people go whoa yeah yeah no that that's definitely uh for sure um you know you you brought up being inducted into the wwe hall of fame by bruno um you know how important was that that moment for you just how how special was you know just overall the the night and you know going into the hall of fame well you
1: know i mean it was it was it was awesome it was it was the completion of a dream come true.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember when Bruno, you know, introduced me and inducted me and I walked out and walked up to him. I, I could see the boys sitting in the front row and, you know, Dusty and Mean Gene and Heat and other guys and Cena was sitting there and Bob Orton Jr. was sitting there and his mouth was it right open like his jaw hit the floor like he just couldn't believe the sight, you know. I mean, it—it it was a classic moment, and it was a—it uh, it was great. It was, you know, the, the end of a dream. I and I kind of blanked out. I mean, I don't remember what I said. Whatever I said came from a higher dimension. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember saying, you know, I walked through Bruno's hedges, and he opened the door and led me into the, you know, world of professional wrestling, and. Mm-hmm. And now here Bruno is again, and this time he's opening the door that's finally letting me out.
0: Yeah, yeah. At
1: the end of the dream. You know?
0: Yeah, everything and, came full uh, circle.
1: Yeah, so everything kind of came full circle. It was super special. And I mean, I didn't remember what I said. I mean, I, I was getting ready to kill myself. And uh, Vince came running out and said, Larry, that was great. You were in the moment. That's what I wanted. So <laughs> yeah. Vince Vince knew I left this dimension.
0: It came from a higher dimension. <laughs> yeah, you were de- you you know. Besides, you know, having a good speech, you were uh, you're definitely one of the best dressed that night. I, I I love the white jacket, man. You you look good that hey, night.
1: I, I look good.
0: You did, you did. I, I agree with you on that one for sure. Oh man, you um you know also you you talk about Vince McMahon. Everybody knows, uh you know just such a a genius that he is when it comes to wrestling um but you know someone i want to know about is vince mcmahon senior like how was that relationship how was it you know your memories of him as uh you know a promoter well
1: vince mcmahon senior i mean yeah, when i started you know i started you know working for him and i think vince started maybe two or three years before i did doing the announcing Mm -hmm. and i you know again back then they didn't want you in the business yeah but I got in because Bruno talked to Vince McMahon Sr., and Bruno was the big star there for, you know, 18 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Bruno said to, you know, Vince Sr., I'd like to bring this kid in as my protege. Yeah. So, you know, just the politics, and I didn't realize how even politics worked yet. I was 21 and all excited so Ben Senior said, sure, we'll bring him in, and you know' we'll be a protege. We teamed me up with Korea for a while as I learned more of the ropes and Tony was a good guy. we had fun traveling around and then at the uh, it was kind of an interesting thing because at the time when I stabbed Bruno in the back and, and pulled that one off, it was a time when Bruno retired. Yeah. you know he broke his neck, he retired, and he was doing the broadcasting. And the thing was, at the time, the fans just weren't ready to see Bruno leave yet. They, They loved him so much, they just didn't want him to leave yet. And the promotion, you know, Vince McMahon Sr., he was a classic promoter of the day. He had that long cashmere coat and the long wavy hair, always looking, you know, like a class act. I mean, he was a great promoter, too, for those days. Mm-hmm. Had a couple of partners. So he always had three or four quarters in his hand. He'd jingle them as he'd walk in that. But he didn't know what to do to follow Bruno.
0: Yeah. So
1: he, did, I think Billy Graham had a little bit. Then they gave it to Backlund. But Bob compared to Bruno was like night and day. And the people were so into guys like, you know, Bruno and Professor Tanaka and George Steele and 300 pound, you know, monsters that Bob looked like a high school kid <laughs> that shouldn't be in there, yeah. you know, and nothing against Bob because he's a great athlete, great wrestler, very strong. I mean, I like Bob. He's a good guy. Mm-hmm. But, he couldn't follow Bruno's shoes. So the business was going down. The garden wasn't selling out. The big clubs weren't selling out. And I knew if I could get Bruno to make a comeback, you know, not only would the business shoot up, but whoever Bruno wrestled would become a big star. Mm Because all the publicity came out of New York in those days. So, I looked at it. If I stabbed them in the back and could convince him to do it, I'd, I'd be, that would be my big break. I'd become the biggest bad guy ever. And yeah. I did.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: And it was, it was interesting because Bruno as as I've thought about it for a while. And then we talked to Vince Sr. and me and Vince Sr. You know, I mean, it was a little shaky because, you know, Vince Sr. was looking at me like, Okay. And you got a 26 year old kid here <laughs> and wants to do this and that. And, and I didn't realize it at the time, but, um, you know, I mean, I didn't fit the mold of the typical 300 pound bad guy or Bruno thing. Mm-hmm. And you have to also realize that Vince senior being the promoter, he was the guy that had to put his butt on the line. You know, he had to put his checkbook out for rent Stadium. You imagine how much that cost?
0: Yeah, it's a, a lot you of know? money. <laughs>
1: plus, yeah, plus Madison Square Garden. So there were some reservations at the beginning, but Vince finally said, okay, give it a shot with Bruno. And once we gave it a shot and he saw, you know, you know, how much heat there was, because no one thought it would it would get over that big. I, I didn't realize it would get over that big and people would try to shoot me and stab me and... <laughs> You know, I mean so, so so once we got it started, you know, Vince was great and, and he and, and he believed in it and he, he pulled his checkbook out and rented Shea Stadium and you know, which took guts, but he did it, so uh, I thanked him at the Hall of Fame too. I wouldn't have got a big break without, you know, Vince Senior.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Uh seems uh Vince Senior and, and Vince Junior they both Uh, take the big risk for the big payoffs Uh, and, you know, it's worked in in their favor for a good amount of years.
1: Yeah, well, they got guts and and they're smart. I mean, Vince Jr., you know, when he's working for his dad, he he never said much, but he listened to everything. Mm -hmm. And he was the one that saw the new era coming. After the me and Bruno feud, the business was kind of changing because national TV was starting. Yeah, yep. You know, so... Vince uh, Vince Jr. was the young promoter who saw the new thing coming where guys like Vern Gagne and the Crockett's, they were all happy with what they had going and really didn't think about it. So yeah, Vince was really smart, man. He turned it into a, you know, a nationwide, you know, Wrestlemania. I mean, he really, yeah, he's really, he is a genius. I mean, he's a sharp guy. And talk about, you know, guts. Because uh, from what I heard, I think that was you know, when he was getting Mania started, it kind of was at the point where he put up his house, everything he owned. Oh, wow. If it would have bombed, you know, he could have lost his butt, just like Ben Senior and me and Shea. Yeah. But it worked. So he wanted to buy in Titan Towers and WrestleMania became an American thing, like football, you know, bigger even, you know, shit.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a crazy, yeah, now we have this, hey,
1: Vince is the greatest promoter of all time,
0: I can agree, I can definitely One agree, the best yeah, he
1: shared, there'll be a statue of him too with Bruno and Andre someday,
0: it should be, <laughs> yeah, it's, it has to come man, Vince is the, the father of wrestling, that's what I like to call him for sure, um, you know, when we talk about like fantasy booking and things like that, you know, things, matches people wanting to see, uh, you know, Undertaker and Sting is always a match people always talk about they wanted to see. And something that, you know, never happened, you know, you and Ric Flair. Do you ever wish that, you know, you guys would have, you know, ever had that one match?
1: Yeah, you know, me and Flair never worked. And I'll tell you a story about that. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Because we were supposed to. Yeah. And it would have been great. And I, I said, okay, oh, i work with Flair. Shit. And then this, this was back like. 1984, 1985, mm-hmm. when the national cables hit, you know, and Flair was down with the N.W.A. on T.B.S. Yep. And I was with the A.W.A. And they started on a new nationwide cable ESPN.
0: Yep.
1: And the Crockett's and the Gagne's were trying to work together a little bit to try to compete with the WWE, which took way off there fast because Vince knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So, it's kind of interesting because, and that was also the time when merchandise was first coming out, like the first action figures. Yeah, yep. And when the action figures came out for the AWA, there was two guys in each pack. You know, Blackwinkle and Ganya, or this and that, or, you know. But in my action figure pack from the awa it was me and flair Mm -hmm. even though flair wasn't in the awa but we were supposed to be wrestling by then having a feud and it's an interesting story because here's the idea i walked into tv one day and burn pulls me over and he has me do a couple of interviews bad mouthing flair you're like calling him out and challenging him and saying i am the living legend you know and mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. and that would have been on espn so then flair was supposed to come back and badmouth me on tbs and then one of the shows one of the groups would have invaded the other guy's show so basically it was the new world order idea 10 years before the New World Order happened. But at the last minute, the Gagne's and the Crockett's, there was just too many cooks, and I couldn't come to the final agreement. So the match never happened. Otherwise, It would have been great, but but that's why the Dolls came out with me and Rick, even though we were in different spots and never wrestled, because we were supposed to.
0: Oh man, that's a that's a yeah. crazy story.
1: It would have been yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. Anybody asked me, I mean, the nature was great in his day, and I, I would have looked forward to it because we would have had you know, some of the best matches ever.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's definitely a fact. Um, you know, uh, in the the same breath, thinking of uh, Ric Flair, you know, you always think of the Four Horsemen, and um, you know, somebody that you teamed with, uh, you know, that I liked you guys together, Arn Anderson. I thought you guys were. A great uh Hill tag team for sure. Um, how yeah. was it how was it being a part of the Enforcers and teaming with Arn Anderson?
1: Well, I was never a horseman. Some people, you know, think I was. Mm-hmm. But uh it was interesting because when I was in WCW after the AWA closed I came down and I think it was holy maybe kinda of put me and Arn together as a tag team. Arn was always a tag team guy. Yeah, Yep. And I was always a single guy, basically, and I liked being a single guy, and because you got more attention, more money, you know, time spot. But I was getting like over a little over forty years old, you know, ninety one, whatever it was. And uh, so they asked me about Team with Arn, and I went, "Oh yeah, I mean, I thought Arn was great. I mm-hmm. mean, Arn was great, and he was a great guy, fun to travel with. But when they put me and Arn together, people pop. I mean." The first time we walked down to an arena, it felt like you were back in the 70s. Whoa! I mean, you know, it was like what you said. It felt like that old school connection. And that team really, uh, it really worked out good. It could have gone on a little longer if we wanted it to. Mm-hmm. But Bill Watts came in and started screwing everything up, and he made a group, a group formed, a dangerous alliance. Yeah, yep. With like five guys. And I didn't like being part of a group. And I didn't like working for Bill Watts. But I didn't want to mess up my contract. And this is kind of how this happened. So I didn't like being in the group. And I had a contract with TBS so they paid for everything. So I went, oh, ow, uh, my knee. <laughs> so I, I had a little foreign cartilage. So I, I went and took uh, you know, a few months off to get my knee scoped. Mm -hmm. So I was sitting at home, uh, you know, recovering for a couple months, getting back in shape for the ring, not even thinking of this stuff. But then I get a call from somebody at TBS, and they say, hey, Larry, Jesse, the Ventura just quit. Uh, Can you do us a favor and come down and voice over a couple of our taped show for the syndicated markets? Oh, man. So I went, oh, okay, yeah, I'm been paid for sitting here. I'm getting bored, you know, I'm starting to walk good. I'll come down. And uh, so I went down and I voiced over a, a couple of uh, shows, I think maybe with Jr. I can't remember, J.R. or Tony. And after the shows, the executive producer comes running into the room and he goes, Larry, you're the greatest guy we ever heard. <laughs> nice. Hey, we would like you to be a broadcaster. I mean... And here, we'll pay you this much money. I almost fell off the chair. Oh, man. Because it, it, those were the days, the time, it was the Sting and the Lugers and the other guys, where TBS and WWE were starting to get big money contracts away. Yep. So guys wouldn't leave. So there was guys that really didn't know much, but they were getting, you know, three, four hundred grand a year, five hundred, which in those days was huge money.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: And stuff. So they offered me something like that to broadcast like one day a week. And then when Nitro started, it was maybe two days a week. So I so I said, you gotta be kidding me. And I'm like, I'm getting close to 42 years old, had a couple of knee scopes and stuff. And I'm looking at the business and the newer guys coming in and you know, they would. Have, I didn't want to burn out my career and my image by keep getting beat by a bunch of new guys. Yeah. So I, I said, "Well, yeah, okay, I'll take this deal. Hell, I'd be an idiot not to, at my age and with this money. That's so." That's how the broadcasting started, just by <laughs> you know getting my knee fixed and taking to spot a day. I, I never planned on it. Never thought about being a broadcaster. But that worked out really good because it gave me, you know, a couple more generations of fans as they grew up. And then, like you said, you know, it led to the New World Order thing at the end of the 90s from the broadcasting, kind of just like Bruno did from his broadcasting to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so everything worked out great. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> I don't need it yet. And, and plus the last 10 years of you know the broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And Being there for a couple of new generations, the other guys my age in the early 40s were starting to fade away, or some guys are getting too old and hurt, you know. And he, but I've been lucky, I, I don't need any artificial parts, I don't need surgeries. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm 30, I, I feel great. So, I've been lucky, brother. I'm mean, yeah. like hurt myself.
0: Yeah, thank God, thank God for that for sure. Um, yeah. you know, we talked about you know not having the match with Ric Flair, but you know, you've had. A ton of matches with you know a list of who's who's in wrestling. Um, is there ever a, a favorite match or a favorite opponent that you've had through all this? Uh, is it, does it always is Bruno always at the top of that list, or is it somebody else we want to think of?
1: Well, yeah, I mean it's hard to beat you know Bruno because not only was Bruno Bruno and it was the biggest stuff, but it also involved selling out crowds at the biggest arenas in the country, you know, Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, Philadelphia Spectrum, whatever it was, you know, I mean, all the big stuff, so it was, yeah, I mean, that would be like the most special to me, but then there was other guys that were great to work in the ring with, too, I get in the ring with Bach Winkle, wrestling him a bunch, he was great, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Sergeant Slaughter had some great matches, and, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to name one, but Bruno was the, the best and most of, to me.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, when you look back, you know, at your career, is there anything you would change or anything you wish that would have happened that didn't happen?
1: Yeah, I don't think I would have got married the first two times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Bruno warned me it just wasn't that business, you know. I mean, the first wife, very sweet, you know, beautiful blonde from Iowa, but it was like I was a little too young. But you know, kind of on the road. Sometimes you get lonely. Yeah. And uh, but but the weird part was, you get married and you stick your wife in a house, and you go, okay, I'll see you next Sunday. I'll be home okay the Sunday after that for half a day, and uh, then I'm going to Japan for five weeks. And then I'll be back for a day. And oh, then I'm going gosh. on the road for a week. So you, you were never there.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It was it was really just not, not the life, especially when you were you know young and get going. Because you were never home. It was silly to have a home.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you on that.
1: So, but other than that, no, I, I really can't uh, complain about doing anything different. Who knows, you know yeah everything worked out good
0: yeah no good now you're you know you're relaxing in good old florida you know just enjoy oh. your days <laughs>
1: thank <laughs> so. god yeah i can't i can't take the cold snow blizzards and uh-huh. anymore yeah, I'm, I'm not leaving florida that's supposed to be i think 77 and not tomorrow
0: yeah. the next day i'll be laying out by the pool getting the tan oh see look at that i'm jealous of you i'll be here shoveling <laughs> snow and yeah be- i know <laughs> Uh, so you know the you know you talk about you know you live close to the the performance center as well for WWE. Um, do you have like a specific role there? Is it just like you just you know show up just to help the the young guys and girls out, give them advice?
1: Yeah, you know what I mean. I really don't have a role. I mean, I'm not you know working there. Yeah, I couldn't take the working there because you got to be up at eight, do certain things. Oh or, man! And I, but what I like to do, you know. They'll run shows and do classes. One of my buddies, one of the finishing coaches, and mm-hmm. I'll work with his class. But i go down and watch the show and then have a meeting. I'll throw out some comments. There's a couple guys there, you know, tell them some things and then go to the NXT tapings. And, you know, and they're nice, you know, they listen and some things worked out good. But then, you know, you, even though the things they teach at the performance center, but then when they move up to the big time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's like they don't do it. They're running into a foot and slapping their leg and yeah. diving like everybody's.
0: Yeah, changes up, huh?
1: Yeah, so you know. Well, oh, man. But uh, but uh, yeah, again, I I haven't been down all year because of this silly uh, flu stuff. But hopefully, we'll get back to normal because I I love going down there and sticking my nose in. It.
0: Yeah, no. Hopefully, hopefully we get back to normal, and you know we can um, get back to normal wrestling life that all us fans and you know entertainers like for sure. Oh yeah, and people. I mean, got people with businesses and get the kids in school. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I got I got two kids home right now, so yeah, I feel the pain true. of that. <laughs> Trust me, I I well, know yeah, how it is. So hopefully
1: we'll get back to normal. <laughs>
0: Yeah, um you know some, something else I, I heard about you as well i heard you heard you were pretty talented at uh playing golf uh how how was that do you still keep up with the game today Do you do you still play
1: oh yeah i play a little bit i mean uh not as much as I used to because the one guy that my golf buddy was good and he moved away a few years ago
0: uh-huh.
1: florida is the place to be but yeah, I got into golf and then those ten years or so when I was doing the broadcasting and not working hardly
0: mm-hmm.
1: I I golfed all week. Yeah. You know, with guys and stuff. So I got really good. I mean, I became I was a scratch golfer and my plans, you know, when I got over fifteen, fifty one when I could, was to um try getting on a pro tour, you know, play a couple of qualifiers or stuff with the like pro mini tour events and see if i uh, you know could make uh, make it on the uh, senior tour yeah so uh, when w c w uh stopped uh, was kind of the time i was turning fifty one and something that's how i how i came to Florida from georgia was um because i wanted to uh, hit the pro mini you know, the professional golf circuit yep so, uh, so it was fun for about a couple years, but I was like three strokes not good enough <laughs> to really make any money with, you know, with those guys. Because you were playing guys that were on a European tour and a young tour that really didn't make it but
0: were great. I mean, my best score I ever turned in was a 67. Oh, wow.
1: But to the other guys who were the top guys if they turned into 67 they were mad <laughs> you know? yeah
0: yeah every day they're turning on 65 66 yeah you
1: know, i'm going shit. you know 70 72 69 70 I mean, sounds good but just not good enough to, to do i was wrestling too long while they were golfing the past.
0: oh man well hey you you did a, a lot better than a lot most of us would i'll tell you that um do you do you have like uh you know, we close out, uh do you have any, you know, like funny stories or any oh ribs god. or anything that you know you could tell or that you remember from, you know, your time in the business?
1: Oh god, I could write an encyclopedia of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You know what the only thing I can say is that what I'm excited about that's coming out soon is this mm-hmm. movie. Uh me and a few of the other boys were in a movie.
0: Uh huh. Oh wow.
1: Uh, we, we made it last year here in Orlando, uh-huh. and it's called The Replaceables.
0: The Replaceables? Oh, man.
1: Yeah, and it's about a group of wrestlers that save a town from aliens,
0: basically. <laughs> oh, man. And
1: it, yeah, we shot it last year. It was getting edited, and, uh, you know, the music and all that stuff throughout <laughs> this last year. And it slowed it down a little bit because of the COVID, but it, they're still working on it down at full sale right down the road. So it should be done, hopefully, pretty soon. Maybe it'll be out this summer fall, I don't know, we'll see. But the funny part is, I made a record in 1980 after the Bruno thing, uh-huh. and I called it, and the record was Boo On Me. Boo On Me. Yeah, you can. it's on YouTube. You can look a Boo On Me and listen to this stupid record. <laughs> but I, I used Boo On Me for a ringtone on my phone. Uh-huh. And when I was talking to the director one day, someone called me, and all of a sudden he hearing boo on me, boo on me, you know, with the bell and and shit. And he says, what's that? I said, Well oh, it's a record I made in 1980, a wrestling record. No one made record back then. And I printed a 1,000 of them up on you know, 45 vinyl. And it sat in the, you know... Cassette for 40 years, but the director heard it. He went, Oh, that's perfect for the movie. We'll put it at the end with the credits are going up. It'll
0: Boo on me. Oh, man. The wrestling
1: belt. So, <laughs> so I'm excited about the movie coming out with the Boo on me record that can become a big hit yeah. before I croak after 40
0: years. <laughs> oh, man. No, not, not anytime soon. No, it's well, not I'm happening. inventing
1: a new slogan, I hope, because for the last you know, 20, 30 years, everything was F U. you. F you, F you, F this.
0: It's already boring. So now when people are, you know
1: fist off with
0: somebody, they don't have to say F few. They can just go, Hey, well boo on me, man. Boo on me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. We got, we got, I like that. We gotta we gotta get that on the shirt. am <laughs> Yeah, look at some boo on me shirts going. Oh, uh, that's hilarious. That that's funny, man. Um you know, Larry, I really appreciate you, you know, taking out this time and, you know, talking with me. Uh, It's truly an honor talking to you know a living legend like yourself, and I just uh, you know I'm very gratified, a lot of gratitude for you doing this for me for sure. Well, it it
1: was fun, I tell you, Derek. It was one of my more fun podcasts.
0: Awesome, I definitely I appreciate that. Hey, you know this is this is the world of you know social media and all that. If fans want to follow you uh, (laughs) on social media, (laughs) how would they be able to do that?
1: They can't.
0: They can't. No.
1: <laughs> you know what? I, I have a flip phone. My my razor phone. I love it. Yeah. And I it's twenty five bucks a month, unlimited talking tax.
0: Oh man. But
1: I don't do social media. I don't. I don't have a tweeter. Uh-huh. I don't post stuff or face plant or you know walk around like walk around staring at my phone all day. I mean I. I can't. I, I, I'm a dinosaur. So I, really, I don't do social
0: media, so no one can really follow me. You're just going to have to hear me on podcasts. I, guess. <laughs> hey, I, I hear you. I hear you. rarity. I, li- I like that. That's how you got to keep it. Oh, man. But, uh, you know, once again, thank you so much. Um, all fans out there, uh, definitely, you know, check out the great work that Larry has, you know, put on throughout his whole entire career. That's why we have great things like WWE Network. So, we can keep up with all these great legends, you know, that we've had from the past. Uh, you could definitely make sure you follow Wrestling IQ 101 on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and check this out on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Make sure you subscribe. And for this episode, it's Derek, it's the living legend Larry Zabisco, and we both are out.